Santa Cruz. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. I'm your host, Christopher Carr. We are very excited to welcome Seth Ferranti as our guest this evening. When writer and director Seth Ferranti received a 25-year LSD kingpin conviction after faking his suicide and landing on the U.S. Marshals' top 15 most wanted list, he thought his life was over. After a drug-dealing teen, Ferranti sold LSD and cannabis at 15 East Coast colleges, crisscrossing across five states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Maryland, a wannabe rock star and Hunter S. Thompson-style outlaw whose heroes were Henry Rollins, Axl Rose, and Jim Morrison. He followed the Grateful Dead and considered himself a counterculture rebel, not a criminal, as he was breaking laws which he thought were wrong. He stands by those convictions today and sees himself more as an activist who, has little ahead, who was a little ahead of the times, a trailblazer of the legal cannabis space and psychedelic movements. He began building a writing and journalism from inside the belly of the beast with unlimited access to criminals and their stories. Ferranti started crafting raw portrayals of prison life and crack-era gangsters. Discovering a passion and talent for writing, Ferranti also studied the trade, earning an associate's bachelor's and master's degree while in prison. With hope for his future renewed, Ferranti started penning prison and gangster stories for Vice, Don Diva, Feds, Hoop Shape, and others. He took it one step further and established his brand, Gorilla Convict, from prison. Ferranti became a true crime publisher and built a website documenting stories that the mainstream media was not willing to share. In February 2015, after serving 21 years, he was released from the Bureau of Prison to seek his fortune. Back in the world, Ferranti continued his writing career as a journalist, penning pieces for Vice, Ozzy, The Daily Beast, Dazed, Mary Jane, and features for Penthouse and Real Crime magazines, among others. He also started writing and publishing comic books under his imprint Grind Studios and embarked on his true passion, filmmaking. Fresh out of prison, Ferranti joined forces with Sean Rick and Transition Studios to make White Boy, a feature documentary on Richard Wersh Jr. that aired on Stars and became one of the top ten hits on Netflix. Ferranti started, starred in the season one finale of Vice's TV's I Was a Teenage Felon. He has appeared on Fox News, Inside Edition, and News Nation as a subject matter expert and is currently directing several documentary projects, Nightlife, Dope Men, Tangled Roots, and the History of the LSD Trade, and Generation Ecstasy. These are all in various stages of production. He also has numerous scripted and television projects in development. It appears there is no stopping him. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. Welcome, Seth, to the show. Hey, what's up, man? What's up? How Appreciate are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell the world, where are you joining us today? Oh, I'm in St. Louis right now. Yeah, St. Louis. That's where your, um, your lady grew up around there, right? Yeah, yeah, she's from here. So uh, we actually got a house in Northern California, too. So we're kind of like, uh, you know, Midwest, West Coast, back and forth right now. Right on. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, and you got a lot going on here. Um, I mean, imagine with your filmmaking that it kind of brings you on the road a lot. Um, but can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, you know, when you were um, growing up, did you ever have aspirations for filmmaking? Or how did this pursuit this creative part of you really come to come to be yeah i think when i was young i i always wanted to be more like a rock star you know but then uh you know i became a you know outlaw you know drug dealer cannabis psychedelic guy instead and then you know because because of that you know i went to prison for 21 years so then you know i got out you know i'm in my 40s i'm like well if you can't be a rock star i mean what's the next best thing you know film director so Quentin Tarantino is quite a quite a rock star, and Guy Ritchie. I mean, those are rock star filmmakers for sure. Yeah. Plus, I felt you know, in my forties, you know, I think I think the music game is is you know a younger man's game. So, you know, if you're gonna become a rock star, you're gonna become a rock star in your twenties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Life on the road is hard. I mean, even doing film, I imagine you're you're on the road quite a bit. 
Yeah, but I mean, film, you know, you know, that's something you can more mature into as, you know, writer, director. So I just felt more comfortable pursuing that when I got out. But also, you know, to me, uh, I mean, film is, is the next evolution as a writer. You know, I started out kind of writing songs and, and poetry. And then I started doing, you know, articles and then I started doing features and I started doing books, you know, so kind of the next stage to me, you know, as a writer is, you know, when you move into film, you know, you do screenplays, you know, writing, producing and directing. Scene, yeah, so crucial. Well, and that, that moving picture is worth a thousand words. And, and one thing that, that I really love about your story that I think a lot of people in the, in the community, the cannabis community, as, as a second generation grower, this distinction between outlaw and criminal, uh, and this is certainly a part of the, the heroes I grew up reading with Henris and, and, uh, different, different, um, you know, the Kerouac and these, these kind of like coming of age stories, but, you you come you come to realize over time the the government doesn't necessarily have your back um and, and and there's certain things with the war on drugs that weren't very righteous even though we we all know that what is legal can be so de- detrimental to the health of our society i.e. tobacco and, and alcohol and, and sugar and, and caffeine but can you speak about that distinction between outlaw and, and criminal and, and 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 especially with cannabis how that is a you know, been a misinterpreted, especially with this war on drugs. Yeah, I've just always told people, you know, despite doing 21 years in prison, I have never considered myself a criminal. I mean, never. I, I didn't carry a gun. You know, I didn't have a criminal organization. You know, I didn't uh, intimidate people or, you know, rob people or take stuff from people or, you know, beat up people that owe me money if they couldn't pay. You know, I, I didn't do none of this stuff. You know, I always tell people, you know, I was an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. You know, even as a 16, 17-year-old, you know, kid, you know, I, I didn't believe. You know, I, I came up in the 80s, you know, like, you know, this is your brain on drugs with the, the eggs frying in the pan, you know, the D.A.R.E. program, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no. Yeah. So they, they were they were equating you know, marijuana, cannabis to heroin. And, you know, I started smoking weed when I was 13 and I was just like, you know, they don't know what the, you know, basically they don't know what they're talking about. So, you know, I came to those conclusions real early. And then as you know, I got more into the cannabis culture, which we called back then, like in the eighties, we called it the counterculture. Nice. You know, so yes, of it course. was still kind of, yeah, it was still kind of off the hippie stuff, you know, because, I mean, the 80s, you know, the, the hippies were only, you know, like maybe 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, we were like the extension of the, the hippie generation, you know, in the late 60s, except now like the late 70s, 80s, they call it the counterculture. But, uh, yeah, definitely, I just, um, once I got more into the cannabis culture, you know, I got on psychedelics and I was just like, you know, these are not bad substances, man. These are substances you know, that you can expand your mind with, you know, that they have medicinal, spiritual, and therapeutic value. And then when I started looking in the history, probably like as a late teen, I started, you know, reading, uh, you know, like The Emperor Wears No Clothes and, and, and other books like this. Yeah, and Jack I, I start, Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, start, I start, you know, seeing the history. And, and like up until like 100 years ago, I mean, Cannabis was used for everything, you know, medicinally. It was, you know, the hemp was used for ropes and sales. And then it seemed like, you know, all these big, you know, titans of industry, when the industry started, you know, kind of, and these are like famous names in like American lore, like the DuPonts or the Rockefeller, stuff like this. You know, these were these titans of industry in the late 19th century. And as they started getting exposed, you know, for child labor and sweatshops and stuff like that, they started looking for other avenues to make money. You know, because they had made so much money off the industry in this country, you know, and making kids work like 12 to 16 hours a day and, and paying them nothing and stuff like that. So, you know, if you look at it, it's really weird because the plastic industry and the pharmaceutical industry, they both kind of came online, you know, were kind of uh, started like in the 20s. Wow. You know, this is when marijuana starts getting vilified. You know, yeah. so it's like anything. I mean, you know, this is America. It, it's capitalism. So, you know, these people with money, they were looking for new markets to make more money, and they need to get rid of cannabis, 
you know, because, I mean, cannabis back then, it, it would, I mean, like I said, it grows anywhere. Hemp would grow, you know, you could go out to Kansas and hemp was growing everywhere, you know, like in the Midwest. And, you know, within that hemp, you know, so if they were female, then it was cannabis. So, you yeah, know, man, it's yeah, been it was, around forever, man. Yeah, yeah it, was hemp, forever. it was hemp for victory. I mean, there was a, you know, there was, there's endeavors by the government to, to encourage U.S. farmers to grow it during the war effort. And, you know, we have this long history from the founding fathers, too. They all grew hemp. They all were cannabis farmers. This is Americans as apple pie to, to cultivate this plant. Betsy Ross, that first flag was, was made from cannabis. That, that parchment of the Declaration of Independence is made for cannabis. It says Americans as apple pie and baseball and jazz. It's a part of our history. And you're right. That was a, a dark time with the yellow journalism and, uh, William Randolph Hearst too, like California had a big part in that, and in the in yeah, just the the interest, special interest, right? The, this is America, where there's money to be made and people to exploit. That's partially why the the prohibition and the prohibition of alcohol is ending. So they needed a new war, and this is uh, this is kind of the beginning of roots, the the tangled roots of the war on drugs, which was very much a part of our. Our story growing up, and that's a very interesting part of your story, too. Can you speak to the Grateful Dead? Talk about, you know, counterculture. We have had so many great breeders on the show, growers, multi-generational families speak to the importance of a lot of these founding building block cultivars, the, the chem dogs, the like the original uh, the chronic and the kind buds. I mean, a lot of those things were, were, were cultivated and, and stewarded and shared and distributed through the Dead Tour. Can you speak to the impact of the Grateful Dead and their music and the like the Shakedown Street and how that impacted you, your story and, and your 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 upcoming, your upbringing? Yeah, basically, um, I started going to Dead shows like, uh, you know, 17, you know, or 16, 17, probably like 87, 88. And, um, you know, I was already kind of, you know, dabbling you know, locally, like like in my high school with, uh, you know, cannabis and, and, and LSD. And, you know, I was in Virginia, so I grew up in, in California. So, you know, I would I would get homies from San Francisco. You know, they send me like Humboldt Bud, you know, Emerald County Bud, you know, every fall and stuff like that. And then rest of the year, I would get the Mexican. But I, when I started going, I first started going to Dead Shows because really I was trying to get like a, a you know, a solid LSD connect. You know, at first I wasn't really into the music. You know, I was more into like heavy metal and uh, punk rock and hip hop. You know, but as as I went on the scene, it was just like, uh, like you mentioned, like Shakedown Street. Like on the lot, it was just like, uh, it was like a bazaar, man. It was like this 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 weird, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sixties nineteen sixty seven type summer of love bazaar, but also. It was like all all the drug dealers, you know, for the what I call like the righteous drugs, you know, like like cannabis, you know, hash, mushrooms, you know, all like psychedelics, LSD. They they were all there too because they would kind of gravitate around the Grateful Dead. So to me, for me going, it was like it just really kind of opened my eyes. And I've done a little acid here and there before, but it wasn't until you know I actually started getting a larger amounts. You know that that I experimented a lot more, and then you know eventually I I, I got into the music, you know for the Grateful Dead. But uh, yeah, I was I was there. You know I always tell people, you know I was there. I was there for the scene, man. I was there. I mean, because the drug scene for the righteous drugs that traveled around the Grateful Dead was, was just like you know you could get like the best of the best and most exotic, meet people from all different places. So you know I was kind of a young entrepreneur at heart, you know. So I, I was serious about my hustle. So that, that was kind of like my angle, but yeah, definitely. I think today you see sometimes. I just went to the gym and jam, right? Nice. And, and yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, they they kind of replicate, you know, like some of these events, like gym and jam, and some of these other events. You know, even even you know Burning Man to a certain extent. Except I know Burning Man, you know, it's a lot about the costumes and, and stuff like that. But it's just that whole vibe, man. Yeah, that's like a dead lot vibe. Started with the Grateful Dead, and now it's it's transferred to other things. You know, like Burning Man and the, these EDM festivals. They have like Gin and Jam and stuff like that. Because really, when I was at Gin and Jam, you know, I'm like 51, so I mean, it's it's mostly kids. There's some older heads and stuff like that. But uh, 
you know, really, I felt I felt like I was in a dead lot walking around there. Nice. You know, same feeling, same vibe. Yeah, yeah, it's re- it's refreshing, and that festival culture is still alive, and in some ways, it's the, the modern counterculture. It continues. It's the the kids and the grandkids of, <laughs> of the original Back to the Landers yeah. and hippies, essentially. Yeah, it's it's a lot cooler though now because because now I mean, you know, with with with. You know, cannabis, the, the laws on cannabis are so lax, you know, it's in, in, in the state it's so decriminalized, even though they still need to, you know, change the law on the federal level. But, um, you know, it was like, like dudes were vending, basically, you know, dudes were just vending, like on the lot. They just had like jars of weed. You could just go up, sample different things. Say, oh, let me get some of this, some of this. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like all right out in the open. You know, nobody really cares, you know? Yeah. So that's the one difference, because in the 80s, you know, you had to go in the hotel room or you had to go in the car. You know, had to kind of go in the cut and kind of, uh, you know, keep that under wraps since, you know, at, at that time, which is it's still unbelievable to think, you know, in the, in the mid-80s, they consider <laughs> uh, weed to be the same as heroin. Yeah, ridiculous. Know, which still the federal government, still the federal government does, but. It's true. I know, mean, a lot that's of a big states, deal. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the states have at least, uh, you know, come to sanity. Because really, man, for substances, like, I agree, like, you were you were uh, commenting earlier about, I mean, you got, like, nicotine, caffeine, sugar. You know, THC, it's kind of, like, right there. You know what I'm saying? It's not, you know, then you, yeah. then you get to, like, batter stuff like alcohol, you know, meth, coke, heroin, opiates. You know, it's, it's just like, a, you know, so I, I don't even see, like, it's weird how, some of these substances are legal and then some are illegal by the government. But a lot of times it just comes down to like what they can regulate and what they make money on. That's it. It's money. That's the thing is just who knows who when things get rolled out. And in a lot of ways, the fact that the, the opiate epidemic is, it's just, it's just synthetic legal heroin. It's synthetic legal street. I mean, that's what's so sad about this and, and, and coming to terms with the current, the epidemic continues. We had this massive focus on on COVID nineteen, but there's there are artistic endeavors. I, I, I commend um, you know Michael Keaton just did a really powerful piece, the Dope Sick show that kind of really illustrates how this legal right, completely legal prescription drug opioid epidemic has decimated communities in Appalachia, all across. America and it continues today and it's something that we we still need to come to terms with and one thing I found when you say righteous drug working in the Prop 215 era prior to legalization in California we worked with a lot of vets the Santa Cruz Veterans Alliance was founded in a in a medical dispensary it was like an AA group they were like men's group talking about their they were there for for fellowship and camaraderie and support but at the end of the meeting you would get that that get that bag right that bag of cannabis and, and a lot of the santa cruz we have we have such a big history in, in taking care of people uh in the compassion era of, of prop 215 and in the history of val corral mike corral and wham and giving people free cannabis so that they can curb that combat cocktail of of pills that they get in the VA, and those pills are some of the most evil substances known to man. Yet they are illegal. They are legal, legal substances, uh, and that's a, what's so crazy. Yeah, it's all it's all definitely money based. You know, I, I actually had a really uh, close friend, like one of, one of my best friends in St. Louis. He actually OD'd over the Christmas holidays. You know, oh, this is like so sorry. like like he was he working professional. You know what I'm saying? He was basically yeah, like a, 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 funct- a functioning addict. But, uh, you know, had, he had a brand new, uh, like, you know, year old baby. Yeah. Oh, and he just, no. Man, I'm so sorry to hear yeah, that. Yeah, man. It, Every day yeah, it's it happening. Was, it, was, it, was, it was tragic. Yeah, it was tragic. So, you know, because I'd always heard, you know, you know, since I've been out these seven years, you know, you read about it or you hear about it. But this was like, I mean, this was like, like, this was like a dude, you know, I talked to like three to five times a week, usually hung out with him twice a week. Family. You know, when I was in yeah. town. Yeah. Yeah, he was like the dude, like, when we had to go to the airport, me and my wife, like, he would drive us to the airport. Oh, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's so, special. Like you don't good, do that to like, everybody. Like a good, <laughs> yeah, like a good, a good loyal friend, man. Like a good oh. loyal friend. I could ask for everything. And, and I had seen him, like, a week before, dude, and I I'd even had, like, little battles with him, like, looking through, you know, taking his pills, making him give me the pills and going and throwing Got them away. It. Yeah. And, uh. 
Yeah, but he was just, and he kept telling me, you know, he was going to quit, but, you know, that's just crazy. And that goes back to, like, what I was talking about earlier, like, 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and the plastic companies came online, you know, basically out of greed. And now, look, 100 years later, we got, you know, the highest, uh, you know, death rates from opiates ever, and our oceans are full of plastic. So it's just Oh, like, no. Yeah, yeah. it's it's... We reap what we sow, right? That's the thing. As a society. Yeah, all, all, all that agreed. All that agreed, man. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, so these, true. These certain families that are, are you know, kind of uh, revered in, in American lore. You know, they, it, yeah. what they kind of left us with. Yeah. Well, in, in the modern Rockefeller is the Sackler Purdue Pharma. I, they, they're killers and, and they get off, you know, they pay their couple billion fee, but they still pocket exponentially more billions. It's, yeah. It's greed. Well, it's yeah, a it's sad, crazy, sad, sad, sad scenario. And there are, there are ways that capitalism is, it could, could, could bring people out of, of suffering, but it's, there's also these, these, these cunning and baffling ways of, of, of manipulating and, and lying to the people. This whole war on drugs in many ways was racist, race, racially motivated, and, and, and it was also a special interest play to make money. Again, capitalism, making money, America. Oh, definitely, man. That's why I, I've always considered myself, you know, even from an early age, you know, like in the mid-80s, like 1984, 85, when I first, you know, discovered uh, cannabis and kind of expanded my consciousness you know, I've, I've always considered myself like, like, like a warrior, you know, for the cause. And, you know, so like even, like I said, I never considered my drug deal, uh, myself a drug dealer. I was just bringing, you know, something that people wanted. And yeah, you know, it was, it was nice to make money to continue what I was doing. But to me, it was more like a mission. You know, like I felt like, you know, that was my, uh, you know, not only my right, but my job. You know, because I'm, I'm like college age. You know, everybody's partying anyhow, so I would rather see my yeah, friends, you know, trip out or smoke weed. Yeah, it's yeah, better. Yeah, I'd rather see them smoke weed than the doing blow. drinking alcohol, oh, yeah. Yeah, doing coke. Yeah, that's that's in many ways, well, in, in, in the modern era, too, I'd rather see our veterans have cannabis than this VA combat cocktail that a lot of them leads to premature death, right? Whether it be yeah, suicide more, or not. and more problems. More problems. You Way take, more you take. problems. I've never, I've never been a pill dude. I've never been a pill dude because you take Likewise. those pills, then you just have to take more pills. Yeah, it's designed that way. I mean, that's how you make money. Because yeah, you see the people, they like, like the people, the old people, they walk around, they got these bags, and it's like, <laughs> I know. Well, what do you have cases. like twenty prescriptions? Cases like, and yeah, cases. You just smoke some weed, man. Exactly. Weed. Do don't, it regularly. don't take any of that. Yeah, smoke some weed, man. It can take care of everything for you. Uh, in many ways, too, we're looking at this. Uh, there's a shift happening, and this is really timely with your with your writings and your filmmaking, your storytelling, your your creative endeavors are riding this wave of. Uh, there's a there's a renaissance in in the cannabis uh, drug policy reform, but also in psychedelics too, because I think, yeah, smoking cannabis and eating cannabis, you know, just bringing that into your life. The same could be said with fungi and, 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 and adaptogens and, you know, different neurotropic mushrooms and, and just bringing in these things that, that kind of regulate your, your chemistry naturally and can be a prevention before you need the prescription. That's something that a lot of people need to consider. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I see it too. I've always seen, like specifically like LSD, I've always seen LSD as a tool. And I've always seen it as a tool. Like if you take LSD, you know, and, and you know, it goes back to the set and setting because you got to have the right mindset. You got to be in the right place. You know, when you take it, but you can have these really profound experiences. And um, you know, I believe just like you know, a lot of a lot of my elders, you know, the people who were in the '60s, you know, the chemists and the people who started the underground LSD trade. You know, um, I've always felt like them because they, they always thought like you know, if enough people, you know, took a hit of acid you know, maybe maybe we could achieve world peace. And I, I think that's even more important now, you know, with the, the world events we have happening right now. And, um, yeah, so that, that's like my thing. I, and what I'm trying to do with my films and my series, I want to show these histories. You know, like I got my project, The Psychedelic Revolution, you know, the, the secret history of the LSD trade. You know, we're going to go, we go all the way back. It's going to be three volumes. It's going to be a trilogy series, but each, each documentary is going to be like a standalone 75-minute feature doc. And, it, you know, it goes all the way back to, like, you know, Albert Hoffman, you know, into the, you know, Mary Pranksters, 
and kind of into the dead and, and Owsley and more the chemists. And it starts looking at the, uh, you know, the whole, the whole trade until like, you know, when Timothy Leary became like the most dangerous man in the world in the late sixties, yeah. you know, and was declared kind of public enemy number one. And then the, the volume two is going to go in all into the war on drugs. eighties, like in the seventies and eighties and nineties, you know, and even two thousands and, and tell the stories of a lot of the people you know, that served multiple decades in prison, men and women like me, you know, due to the war on drugs for what a lot of people, you know, because most of the, especially the people, you know, that follow the dead, I mean, it's really the, the LSD is like, a, it's like a sacrament. You know, it's a real spiritual thing for them. And uh, the third volume of the film is actually going to come to right now. It's going to be called The Renaissance you know, the psychedelic revolution renaissance is going to be part three and it's going to say like what's going on right now. And we're going to, uh, we're actually going to talk to a lot of the kids of the legends, you know, the elders who started it all, you know, just get their whole take, you know, kind of growing up as a uh, countercultural royalty and, and how they kind of view the world. Cause it, I, I think there's like a big shift, you know, it's weird. My dad is a 82 year old, um, ex-Marine who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, you wow. know, baby boomer, you know, but grew up, you know, lived the American dream, you know, was very successful and all that. And, um, he just actually told me recently, you know, like in the last 12 months that, uh, you know, he was like, yo man, he goes, maybe, maybe you were right about cannabis and I was wrong the whole time. Wow. You know, so that's, that, that's powerful. You know, cause, cause yeah, that's really those generations before us. Like, you know, the, the baby boomers and then, like, their parents, their grandparents, you know, those are where the people that were kind of, you know, as young people bombarded with so much propaganda and literature, you know, against, you know, like cannabis and, and, and psychedelics and stuff like that. It was just ingrained in them. And I, I don't think it was really until the 80s or the, maybe the late 70s, you know, where that more got challenged, you know. You know, besides the, the, the push in the 60s, but you saw what happened as soon as they made that big push in that 50, in the 60s, you know, they got target hit. Yeah, they did. You know? Yeah, I mean, well, and yeah, that's, that's, been that's super part of documented. The, well, and that was Nixon, too, came, you know, did the scheduling. It wasn't quite there until Nixon really made that effort, and then it got worse. And then, of course, Reagan era, it, it got militarized and to the next level, especially with cannabis, with camp and the 90s, late 80s. I mean, this is your era, too, and you're, 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 you were very much part of that, a victim of it, too, because in many ways, part of the war on drugs revealed the evil behind law enforcement, not all, but some rose up the ranks by making cases, right? And it wasn't necessarily serving justice or fulfilling the creed of what they swore to do to serve society, protect and serve. It was more about elevating it was ego driven. It was this, it was this mechanism of, 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 of these like seven deadly sins, right? Of, of pride and greed and, and, and stature and, and prestige. And, and in many ways, some of those leaders in the, in the judges at different places were, 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 you know, came up at putting people away for nonviolent means due to the drug yeah. war. Yeah. Cause it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't about what was right or wrong. It was about them winning. And I can give you a perfect, perfect example about exactly what you're talking about. Because I, I, I tell people this all the time. You know, I, I say the same thing as you. You know, maybe a little different. But uh, if you look at Rudy Giuliani, everybody knows who Rudy Giuliani is. Yep. You know, but he made his name taking John Gotti to trial and, and winning those cases. You know, he was the one who came in and finally, because John Gotti beat a whole bunch of cases, and then Giuliani came in, and he was the one that took Gotti down. So that's how he made his name. He elevated himself, and then, you know, that's what, you know, if you're a prosecutor, I mean, most prosecutors, you know, how do you advance as a prosecutor? You become the head prosecutor, and you become a judge, and you become a politician. You know yeah, what I'm saying? So that's, that's it. And they yeah, lead so, our nation, right? <laughs> they write the laws. I people all the time. I tell people all the time, it's not like law enforcement are they, you know, it's not like they're individually corrupt. Are there, you know, there are some, you know, a few bad apples here and there that are putting money in their pocket committing crimes, but most of them, you know, they believe in what they're doing, you know, and, and I would say, you know, inherently, you know, they're good American people upholding the values, you know, you know, which, which they stand for or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it's the way the system is set up. It's a system that's corrupt. 
You know, the system, you know, the system is obviously racist, but the system is also corrupt. So I, that's what I think, you know, our whole criminal justice system, just the way people advance, you know, because you don't advance because you're just, you advance because you win cases. So, you know, it's all about winning or losing. You know, it's not, it's not about what's right or wrong. That's why we have this whole big, you know, war on drugs thing that hopefully, you know, we're through, but who knows, you know, we're, we're at the end of it, I hope, but it seems yeah. like it's still around. It's a, uh, yeah, it's an unraveling, right? We're seeing it, uh, local governments, that's the beautiful thing of a federal, we have this way of enabling, like the gem and jam, and, and here in Santa Cruz, we've always had very special uh, privilege of, 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 of challenging authority in a way where even the DA, for example, with Wham, you know, they, they were growing illegally in 92 and then got caught again in, in 2002 and feds got involved, right? The DEA came, the boys jumped out of helicopters, there's automatic weapons pointing in boots on the back of, of sick patients, AIDS patients, quadriplegics, epileptics, right? And, and, but that's what happens is the, the laws can change on a local level. All politics are local in the end. And hopefully over time we can continue to, to wise up about the, what's really going on uh, and, and uh, continue to, to, you know, civil disobedience and, 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 and acts of civil disobedience that are that are very timely and, and deliberate and organized, right? That's the beautiful thing of a democracy is we're able to really speak out and, and change things. And it takes time, though. It's not an easy thing. We're still here. 2022, speaking about... This this prohibition of cannabis that in many ways roots were a hundred years old almost, eighty plus years, and then the war on drugs is is my whole lifetime maybe beyond that. Um, one thing that's very fascinating to me too is, in many ways you you had a similar with your writing. Once you, uh, well, I'd love to hear a little bit about. I mean, for our audience, I don't know if everybody knows your story. It's a short show. I wish we had hours, and a lot of the things I did due diligence on were multiple-hour interviews. But can you speak a little bit to uh, – you're, you're very prolific. You're relentless in your writing and your, in your, in your approach to your art and to your, your craft. Um, and, and, and can you speak to the, like how that began? Uh, you know, and obviously part of that is your time in prison, and I would love to learn about that. And specifically – you were in prison at a very interesting time with the the hip hop, right? You mentioned you you were a big fan of hip hop. I grew up with '90s hip hop, uh, that Tupac, Biggie era, especially a lot of the West Coast stuff. Um, and and a lot of those people were were your peers. You were in those spaces with these people, and you wrote their stories. Up until that point, no one had, everyone had heard about John Gotti and heard about mob celebrities. In Italian uh, gangsters, but I think it's really important that you were bringing a voice to a very interesting part of history, especially in music history, hip hop specifically. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was, you know, I, I was in. I, I went in the feds in '93, and um, it was kind of just, you know, you, you kind of, uh, you know, express what I was going through because, you know, I was. There was like mafia dudes on the compound, so obviously I was interested, you know. So I would get told my mom like, order me, order me these books, you know. And back then it wasn't Amazon, but it might have been Barnes and Noble. So she'd give me the books, and I'd read them. Then there was a lot of Colombian cartel dudes, and you know I want more information about them. And she'd yes. give me the books, and then like around '95, after I'd been in '95, '96, after two or three years, you know, hip hop, the uh, that was kind of like the gangster rap era, you know, it started jumping off, and um. You know, I, I was like one of the white dudes in there. I used to play basketball. I'm real athletic. I played all sports inside, you know, for basically the whole time I was in. So I might be like the only white boy, like running full court, you know, with a, with a bunch of black dudes, you know, in the prison. Yeah. And I would I would go and I would listen to hip hop. You know, back then it was like you know the MTV raps. I don't know if BET was around in the mid '90s yet, but we would see these rap videos, right? And it'd be these guys from you know New York or or D.C. or Philly, and, and they would rap and they would start talking, like, about, you know, the legends from their hood, you know, like the street legends. And then I would hear, like, the inside stories. There might be somebody from New York, from Queens, you know, and, and they just rapped about the Supreme Team. And so then the dude who's from New York, he might know these guys. He starts, you know, telling stories about these dudes. And I was, like, amazed because they, they were, like, these really kind of, uh, you know, like a mafia, you know, Billy the Kid type figures, 
you know, the way they told these stories and, and kind of romanticized it. And then, like, as a, as an aside at the end, they'd be like, uh, oh, yeah, that dude's, like, over on B-Block. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. then, uh, you know, I would, I would ask my mom the same thing, like, uh, find me some books on these dudes. You know, these dudes are on the compound. So a lot of times she couldn't find any books, you know, they very, very few sources. She might find some articles, you know, or, um, you know, we could find, like, the court records and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I kind of got the idea, you know, I was already writing then, you know, I had, I had started, uh, I was doing like, uh, like sports newsletters. That was kind of like my thing in prison. So that's kind of how I started writing in prison. You know, they post them up, you know, I'd write about the basketball league. They post them all up and all the units and stuff like that, like little intermural sports newsletters. And so I started dabbling, you know, with, with, with article writing and, um, but eventually I got to the point where I was like, man, I, sh- I was like, I should just write some books on these guys. So I approached a couple of dudes and, uh, yeah, we started putting stuff together and, uh, I put out street legends volume one. Um, I think like 2008 while I was in, you know, it, it, it took a while, you know, for all this stuff to kind of, uh, you know, materialize and for, for me to get focused and kind of actually figure out, but I was very intrigued, you know, way back, you know, two, three years in, with all these African-American drug lords, you know, from the crack era and the way these stories were were told, you know, kind of like in the, in the prison, you know, it's like, you can only get these stories in in prison. Some of the stories, you know, most of the stories I heard. So I was just kind of trying to, you know, record like this, you know, lore and, and, and these guys that were these iconic figures, you know, in, in hip hop and being name dropped in verse and, uh, you know, being made out to be like the, the, the worst of the worst, you know, in the newspapers and the court records. But then like, you meet some of these dudes and they're like, they're like the most classic, you know, like, like gentlemen. I mean, you know, they're like thugged out and stuff, you know, cause, cause they're from the hood, but they're just like, you know, like the, the perfect gentleman, you know, I mean, you know, don't get it twisted. Dudes are gangsters. Like if you cross them, you know, you're going to get what a gangster is going to give you. But at the same time, you know, a lot of these dudes had a lot of honor, you know, they had a lot of ethics, you know, and they, they were like, I mean, you know, besides being gangsters, I mean, they were like, uh, you know, pr- pretty good uh, dudes. But a lot of people in that situation, I think they just find themselves in that situation for whatever reason. You're forced to do things that you wouldn't normally do, you know, given a different situation. Seen, yeah, of course. Well, and there's a lot of the, we, we, we learned from that crack era a lot about, what, what what the police were doing what the with the different the CIA there's a lot of ongoing discussion about the pressures that were pushed into the the ghettos of across America and there you also were exposed part of it too I thought was it was fascinating is you were by by telling their stories that's in many ways uh, an education in journalism so you can't misquote you can't cross you can't misrepresent someone because it's very dangerous, and, and, and you you were very oh yeah yeah, yeah you got to speak to that. Definitely, I mean, I I was a white dude in in prison writing stories, you know, about black dudes. So I mean, that's just you know, I mean, prison it's like it's like real racial. You know, I, I was never in like the the level fours or, or fives, which are the highest, most vicious places. But I started out like in a level three, like a medium high, and they call it gladiator school. And it it, it was funny because like sometimes. Like when I started writing and I started getting more notoriety and stuff like that, you know, I, I'd have like like white gang members come to me, you know, and they'd be like, well, uh, you know, like what's up, you know, what's up with this thing, you know, writing about black dudes, you know, because it's real super racial in there. Yeah. And, and I would just tell them, I would tell them straight up, I'd be like, well, yo, when you guys get heroin in, I go, you guys sell it to the Mexicans and blacks, right? And they were like, they were like, yeah, man, that's money. And I go, yeah, well, this is my hustle, man. You know, I'm, I'm a writer, you know. <laughs> you, I'm a prison writer, so. Uh, you you know, with... so they kind of were like, they couldn't say nothing then. You know, once I, once I made it about, you know, career or making money. And really, that's what I was trying to do. I, I looked in there like, you don't have a lot of options, you know, career-wise. So I, I kind of looked to like some of the, 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 the prison writers. And I was like, man, I, I can do this, you know. And I, I just kind of you know, took off with it. You know, people liked it. I started doing a column for Vice called Unbusted. Yeah, I'd love you know, to hear and, about and, that. And, and you yeah. did well. I mean, you were making 500 a month, and for, for prison wages, that's you're living like a king. Oh, yeah, definitely, man. It, it, it was definitely um, it was definitely true. But I think the, the biggest thing to me, I mean, it wasn't always, 
you know, I wanted to tell these stories, but too, at the same time, you know, I wanted a voice. I wanted to be heard. I mean, I was extremely angry, you know, about my yeah. own sentence so and true. I, and I kind of channeled, I kind of channeled all this anger, you know, into, uh, you know, not only exposing my story, but then when I started, you know, finding about these other stories, you know, about kind of exposing them and letting the world know, because a lot of times, you know, in the court records and the newspapers, you know, everything, you know, they try to make it like this angle or that angle, but it's all, it's all like, it goes back to like the prosecutor's winning angle we were talking about. That's all they're focused on, you know, and, and so true. people are people, man. You know, there's, there's a lot of different, it's not all black and white and I'm not talking about race. I'm saying, you know, when the facts are not all, you know, black and white and that clear, there's a lot of gray area and a lot of things in life and you need to really, you know, as, as a person and, as a judge or as anybody in society, you really need to look at kind of all the factors, you know, not only, you know, what this person did or what they were involved in, but why, how did they get there? Well, you know said. What I'm yeah, really no, I love root, it. The root of the problem. It's nice to remember the humanity and that things are complicated. Stuff's complicated. It's not, like you said, there's a lot of gray. Most of life is gray. And a lot of it's confusion, right? We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And like you said, there's a lot of factors that add up, add up to the equation of, of reality in this moment and, yeah. and, and, and behaviors and patterns and motivations. And, and, and there's a lot of nature, nurture. I think that's really well said, man. Yeah. And at the end of the day, anyhow, right? Yep. People are people. We're man. just people. Exactly. Yeah, what, it doesn't matter what color, what color you're Messy. From, people are messy, know, too. Color, yeah. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, what language you speak. I mean, I mean, people are people, man. And if you can relate to people on that human level and accept them as a human being, I mean, it, it's amazing, you know, the, the friendships or, you know, the drama that you can solve. You know, or, or, you know, BC, even in prison, man, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a, it's a violent place, but that, that was kind of my role. I was kind of like a diplomat. You know, I would diffuse a lot of situations. I would just try to make it so, you know, I, I didn't want to see people, you know, get hurt or, you know, especially when you, you develop friends and people feel like they have to do this or they have to do that because you're in prison. You just got to be like, yo, dude, we're not doing life sentence. We're not on a, uh, we're not in the USP, you know, we're not in the Supermax, you know, we're not in these prison gangs. We're going home one day. We don't have to, uh, you know, we don't have to deal with stuff this way, you know, even though, you know, there's a certain code and, and you got to kind of adhere to it to a certain point. But, uh, you know, you got to stay away from a lot of the politics. And yeah, the drama that that's right. Because it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a dead industry. Just the same like out here, you know, get involved in the wrong stuff, you know, they, they got a place for you. And if you're involved in, you know, a lot of criminal stuff, I mean, you know, you're going to be in jail or you're going to be dead or, or, or something, man. You yeah. Know, that's, that's the way of the street. Yeah, that's right. You have to be a person of honor, right, and and, and provide, yeah. you know, dignity, respect. Just keep, you know, treat people, golden rule stuff. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm curious, too, with the uh, – I, I want to get to Tangled Roots because that's near and dear to my, my heart. We, we speak with – Farmers from Soham and Emerald Triangle every week. Uh, but one interesting thing was you were in West Virginia at SCI Beckley and it, you, you, you had this correspondence through third party with, 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 uh, White Boy Rick and, and maybe some people have, have, have it. I watched it with my wife. We really enjoyed it. We thought you guys did a really good job and would love to hear, you, you know, Thank your, you. your experience you. on that. Yeah. Yeah. And just your process. Yeah, so I, I started writing to Rick because, you know, I was I was in these East Coast joints, and he was Detroit dude, and there were a lot of Detroit dudes. So, you know, I'm already writing about these street legends, you know, from, like, you know, Philly, Washington, Florida, you know, uh, East Coast mainly. And so I keep hearing about this guy, White Boy Rick, White Boy Rick. And I'm like, you know, they were, like, this big legend. Like, it was this real young white kid who, like, controlled the black underworld in Detroit, like, in the 80s. And I was like, man, I was, like, amazed. So eventually... You know, I hooked up and I started writing them. And, uh, you know, we built a friendship, but it was weird, too, because I wanted to kind of make him into, like, this Jesse James, Billy the Kid type figure because that's all I was doing at that time. But he was telling me this totally different story, you know, like this, you know, war on drugs tragedy story, you know, where he yeah. was groomed as an informant and yeah. sent out there. And then, you know, he got shot, and then eventually, you know, he they, they gave him life, you know, and tried to bury him. So um, at first I couldn't really vibe with that type of storytelling because I, w I was on like this wild, wild west type of stuff. So, you know, but we, we continued our correspondence 
And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I evolved as, you know, as a, as a writer, but also I evolved as a, a, you know, man and a human being. And I started seeing, you know, the war on drugs for what it really is, you know, and how they were putting people in all these bad situations, you know, and, 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 and how it was, you know, real racial and racist. And, you know, I started looking at how basically they used white boy Rick, you know, and then they were done with him. They just threw him away like a piece of trash. Yeah, they so, did. Uh, yeah. He was a yeah, child, so, too. You know, he was a little kid. He was in school for a lot of the, a lot of the work. Yeah. No, he. I mean, he got a life sentence when he was 17. So yeah, he so wasn't even a legal adult. <laughs> so I, I, I started writing pieces about him. You know, and um, eventually, like, when I got out, I met uh, Sean Reck from Transition Studios. And uh, he had seen, you know, some of my work and some of my pieces. And um, he decided he wanted to make a documentary. And that's what I did. Uh, I, I started working on that doc. You know, he took me as a partner, and he kind of mentored me in, in documentary filmmaking. Nice. Yeah, I thought I thought that was uh, it's a nice – It was not only was it a well-done doc, but it's a nice commentary on the war on drugs because to this day it's still – it's still an ongoing struggle to try to educate a lot of people that were indoctrinated in that era. Uh, and, and, and like what you're saying about your dad, too. I mean, be, growing up as a as a military brat, you know, that's a big shift and it's a big thing. And it's these these stories are really what bring it home and, and, you know, hit the heartstrings of humanity and all of us. And that that sense of compassion and community uh empathy is is so relevant and 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 needed today it's a it's a tough time and we need each other and we need these stories and that does resonate and kind of it's a hard segue but it's a real segue for the growers of of California there was an it was an era in many years where a lot of these back to the landers that just went north from the cities of 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 all over southern California the bay area to these communities in Northern California to take care of the earth, to, to, to put their heart and soul into something that they thought was really righteous, which was the land, the community. But there was also people there logging and just, just there by default. Generations grew up in, in these areas of, of Southern Humboldt and Northern Mendocino, of course, Trinity and, and, and all these other communities. I grew up in gold country. So it's, it's not only just the Emerald Triangle. This is all over the Sierra Nevadas, all the mountains, all the Northern California kind of state of Jefferson mm. zone, but uh, they used San to San Juan, yeah, San Juan Ridge. That's right, that's right, Santa Ana, I mean, Santa Lucia, Big Sur growers, but we need to think about how 60% of the whole nation was coming, all of their cannabis was coming from California, and this was a very special time because it was loved up kind bud compared to the domestic, compared to the, the, the brick weed coming from Mexico or from elsewhere that was really gnarly and really not loved up. It was organized organized crime. And, and so, unfortunately, in this current era, we're seeing a, a corporate takeover, not only of the culture, but also of the of the livelihood of these mom-and-pop farmers. And, and you're working on a very special documentary called Tangled Roots, and I think our audience would really love to learn a little bit about it. I know there's a lot going on and there's a lot more to do, but I would love to support you in this endeavor and, and hear your thoughts on Tangled Roots and, and the growers of Humboldt and Southern Humboldt and the Emerald Triangle. Yeah, so how, how Tangled Roots, how this came about, um, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, maybe like three years ago, I was doing stuff for Vice and uh, Flo Kana had like the big event, like the big event. I think it's, it's, I think it's kind of gone into uh, lore now. You know, they had like Snoop Dogg come and it was like this real big event. And so they flew me out, you know, because they were hoping that I would write a piece about Flo Kana for Vice. And um, they had like different farmers, you know, from, from Humboldt and, and, you know, the Emerald Triangle that they were working with. And they brought in all these small farmers and, um, you know, I met him and I, I met this one guy, John Caselli, who actually, uh, he done, you know, he had a 10 year sentence, you know, for growing and he did like eight and a half years, you know, and, and uh, he got John's out. He, yeah. Huckleberry, Huckleberry yeah. Hill. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of, he kind of, you know, we kind of, I mean, first off, dude had like a bandolier, you know, and he had like, instead of bullets, he had like uh joints in the, in the every one, <laughs> you know, like pre-rolls. You made an impact. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so first Impression. off I met him, you know, and, and he's just like, 
you know, he's like, here, take another one, take another one. It was all like stuff that he grew. And so, you know, we were smoking and he was just like giving me these big uh, joints to smoke. And um, he was telling me, you know, his story, he told me about Huckleberry Hill Farms, told me about his mom, how he learned to grow from his mom, told me how he went to prison and his whole community supported him and stuff like that. And now he had like a legal farm. You know, he had a legal farm, Huckleberry Hill Farms. He was growing, uh, you know, cannabis for Willie Nelson. Yeah. And I was like, to me, you know, because I'd known about Humboldt ever, ever since like the mid-80s when I, I first started smoking weed down in Southern California. You know, I started hearing about Humboldt. And, um, you know, everybody knew that was, that was like the kind bud, you know, because like you said, it was the brick swag, you know, which was basically garbage that we were smoking. Yeah. And so when I met when I met John, I was like, man, like you got everything like, dude, like you're living the dream, you know, like like everything, you know, I thought everything was just like booming for him. Like it couldn't be more perfect. And, uh, you know, after that event, we exchanged numbers because I was interested in maybe doing a feature or doing a story about him. And, um, you know, we were talking about maybe penthouse or vice or something, but, you know, over the next couple of years, you know, the, the story never really materialized, you know, I pitched it, but nobody wanted it. So we kept talking, you know, we developed a friendship and we were kind of going through like our successes and our failures. And he started like telling me like all the, the challenges and problems, you know, not only he was facing, but like all the other farmers, you know, in Soham and, uh, the Emerald Triangle and, Really, it, you know, as as I watched this industry kind of evolve, you know, since I got out in, in 2015, you know, um, I was just like, I couldn't fathom it. It's like how, how these people, you know, that supplied, you know, the nation with weed, you know, like in the 80s and 90s, you know, and, and they grew, you know, this, this really good, you know, organic, sun-grown, you know, like full entourage effects, super terpy bud. I was like, how are these dudes like not kings of the industry or even like kings of the craft cannabis industry? And it just, you know, it started to piss me off. And then, you know, I was, I was already, you know, we'd already done white boy and I was looking for different projects. And so, you know, I kept talking to John over two year period. And I was like, you know what? I was like, man, if I can, if I can get some money, I go, man, we're going to, we're going to do a doc. We're going to do a doc on, you know, talk about, you know, so home, you know, give the history, like all the way from the back to the landers, you know, to the, to the helicopter era and war and drugs era in the eighties, all the way to the, uh, you know, the prop two one five, the medical area, and then all the way into the prop six, four and the legalization. And so basically John, man, just kind of, uh, you know, we talked about it and he just like, he opened the door of, of Southern Humboldt to me and I, <laughs> I went in it, yeah, it was amazing. We, it's we so great, shooting. Seth. Seth, we're at the last minute. I don't want you to get cut off. I know we will get cut off all in right, about right. 50 seconds, and I want you to have the last all word. Right. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you so much. I think this is an ongoing conversation, and we, we're here to support you in that endeavor. John's come on the show. A lot of those growers in Soham have been on the show. They're, they're all family. We're all family in this, and so we appreciate you and what you're doing. And, and wanna, I want to make sure we got 30 seconds. I want you to, to have the last word. So thank you again, Seth. Yeah, just, uh, man, I got all this stuff. I got, like, teasers on my YouTube channel, other Seth Ferrante. I'm on, I'm on social media, you know, at Seth Ferrante. Uh, my website's GorillaConvict.com. You know, that has, you can click the links for the different film projects I got, uh, you know, I'm producing now. And um, I'm going to be in San Fran, man, on, on Bicycle Day. I'm actually doing a panel with Hamilton Morris, Leonard Picard, Ronnie Stanley, Mark yeah. Defile, Tim Tyler. Yeah, for, for my LSD.